listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Traphagen. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or visit our website, The Game on Glio Podcast, for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org. I found a card recently that I gave my husband shortly after he was diagnosed. The author of the saying is unknown, but when I saw it, it struck me, and so I brought it home and gave it to him. What it said on the front basically said it all, and there was nothing left to say except tell him that I love him and that I believed in it. The card said, proceed as if success is inevitable. We don't know why we're chosen for the paths that we're chosen for why certain things happen to some people and don't happen to others, why some people's journeys are harder compared to others in this world. What we do with the path that's laid before us says more about who we are than anything else. We each have to find our own way, figure out the message, find a purpose, no matter how big or how small. For some of us, it's helping others. It's trying to find a way to reach out and let others know that they're not alone, that we're all in this together, and that even though my story may have changed or may not have turned out the way I wanted, that their story is still unfolding. And our guest today, Jenny Williams, a patient with brain cancer, a thriver, and an ambassador with Head for the Cure, Brains for the Cure, is one such person as well who is taking her journey and her path and finding purpose in it, finding a way to thrive, to make a difference, and to let others know that success is inevitable. She joins us next after a quick message from our partner. When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn. How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited a dozen of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure. This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone. With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision makers in their own journeys, learn about treatment options and clinical trials, and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org. Hi, and welcome back. We have with us today our guest, Jenny Williams. 
She's a graphic designer from Chicago, Illinois, and she is a brain cancer thriver. She's been on this journey for the last 12 to 13 years, and she and her partner have been walking through this uh, for a very long time. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't we start out with how this journey began? Uh, When were you first diagnosed? And tell our listeners a little bit about the type of brain cancer you have. I know we've talked a lot about on the show glioblastoma. Uh, We recently had a caregiver who talked about her husband's journey with anaplastic brain cancer, which turned into GBM. But your journey is is a little bit different. Yes. So I remember the date because you never forget a really significant date. It was December 18th of 2008. I went in for a CT scan um, at Evanston Hospital. It was ordered by an ENT, an ear, nose, throat specialist, because um, for a year I had been hearing this whooshing noise in my ear, which ended up being the increased blood flow to the brain. And um, I went in for the CT scan, and they stopped it short, came in. The woman was like, have you had a scan in the head before? And I was like, no, no, not, not of the head. And so she said, okay, okay, well, we're just waiting on feedback from the, um, the radiologist, and we'll, we'll be back in. So I thought that was odd, but in comes the radiologist, and he said, we saw something. And we need you to take your things over and follow this woman over to the ER. I thought, you know, gee, I must have moved or something. You know, I was just kind of laughing it off. And um, they took me into the ER. They did an MRI. And they said that they found a mass in about the size of a small orange in my brain. Mm -hmm. I was alone at the time. And the nurse said, I think you should call your mom. So I said, okay. I mean, I really don't want to call her unless it's something serious, you know. Right. But I called her. I left a message. I was sitting there in the ER waiting for the results from my MRI. Multiple doctors came in and they were doing um, neurological tests, you know, walk in a straight line, touch my finger and then back and touch your nose, that kind of stuff. And they were perplexed. It didn't really hit me until they were pointing to my head and they were saying, okay, so the mass is over here. You know, they were talking about brain surgery. And my parents came in just before the neurosurgeon came in. They were talking, oh, well, there's nothing we need to do now immediately. So just go home and we'll schedule a surgery. We ended up scheduling the surgery for January 2nd the day after New Year's. And this was in 2009. Yes. The holidays that year were pretty strained, you know, knowing I was going to be going into brain surgery. Um, so I went in the morning of January 2nd um, with my mother mm-hmm. and my family was waiting in the uh, waiting room. It was a very surreal experience because after surgery, you know, it was over in like a blip because when you're knocked out, it's just over really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in the post-op area and just saying, woohoo, happy new year, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, this, my way of, of, of dealing with this disease has always been humor. 
So when they were carting me out from the post-op area to ICU, mm-hmm. and I was just talking to all of the healthcare staff about how amazing my mother was, just, you know, how she's dealt with a lot and she's just been my biggest rock. And so I actually didn't, I, I, I didn't feel anything prior to the surgery. I was neurologically stable, which is why the surgeon was a little nervous to go in. He, he said something like, once we go in there, it's like stirring up the pot. Yeah, you're poking around things and uh, causing problems where there are none, technically. Right. So after the surgery, I felt like I had been like uploaded into another body. It was really, really weird. Interesting. Because of where the tumor is located, it was in my right parietal lobe. So my spatial awareness on my left side was just different. And I kind of felt the air particles and it, it's crazy what the brain does that we not hmm. that we're not aware of. And once you have a deficiency there, then you're very aware of it. Right. Now, how old were you when you had the surgery? It was just before my 26th birthday. So you were only just shy of 26 years old when this journey started for you? Yes. Wow. That is young. Mm-hmm. And the the thing is, when they initially took me in and I went through I went through surgery and everything, I didn't think I had cancer. Um, they only described it as a mass, a tumor, you know. So um, I I didn't know what it was. They were even talking about, mm, you know, we don't necessarily have to do surgery. We can just watch it if you want. And I'm like, no, let's get the sucker out, you know. I, wow. So you were actually really adamant about it where they were kind of like, you know, we don't know exactly what this is. They didn't think or wasn't really sure if it was cancer. So they were willing to kind of sit on it. I'm glad you, you know, said no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this was... um with regards to, because they didn't know what it was and I didn't have any seizures or headaches or anything like that. None of the typical symptoms. Yeah. Right. It was just the whooshing noise in my ear. It almost like sounded like a, an echo, you know, like a um, heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And it would only hear it when it was like quiet and it would go away when I press on my jugular vein. Interesting. You know, later on I discovered that tumors do draw in a lot of blood. So there was probably increased blood flow to my brain. Mm-hmm. The tumor itself was about the size of a tangerine and when they discovered it. And my midline of the brain had shifted over. So it was really crazy. The It was like my brain was making room for it. And they, they said that because it seemed to be slow growing, that's probably why I didn't feel any effects of it. Um, and my body was just adjusting and making room for it. Did they say what type of brain cancer this is? They told me it was a grade two oligodendroglioma, which at the time I couldn't even pronounce it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would still have trouble pronouncing that one. Yeah, I, at the time I called it an oligo what what. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my mom, um, she had worked in the medical field for a while. So she was just, you know, talking shop with the doctors and, mm-hmm. you know, she was basically my advocate for me. And um, one of the follow-up appointments post-surgery, I was going to go see the neuro-oncologist. You know, we were 
just getting off the elevator and there's a sign, you know, it says cancer center and all that stuff. And I look at it and I say, ah, it's really interesting. I'm seeing a doctor in a cancer center when I don't have cancer. Oh. I said that to my, my mom and she looked at me and said, uh, you, but you do have cancer. And I stopped and I looked at her and I just was speechless because in my mind I was thinking, oh, I just had this mass removed and I don't have cancer. I'm too young to have cancer. Yeah. I just had that moment and she kind of saw it in me. Um, when we got back home, I was staying with her at the time. Mm-hmm. I just quietly went into my room and just started crying on my bed. Um, thinking, oh my God, I'm too young to die, you know? Mm. And she, being the awesome mom she was, she (laughs) came into my room, you know, without my permission. (laughs) As parents often do. (laughs) Yeah. And she sat down and held me and she said, you know what, this doesn't change who you are. Um, You just have to go to the doctor a little more often. You know, you're still the Jenny that I raised and I I still love and we're going to get through this. And those were the most impactful words that anyone has ever said to me, you know, Um, because, yes, my life did change after that. Mm -hmm. But I just ended up being a lot more appreciative of things and really looking hard at my relationships and who I was spending my time with as this person you know, this or, you know, that. So it it really helped me evaluate my life. And, you know, now that I had something that could potentially take my life, you know. Now, were you with your partner, Sam, at the time? Or did he come around later on down the road? Oh, he came along much later. So we've been together for about five years, five, six years. Okay. So I spent a lot of that time alone because a a little over a year after that my mom actually suddenly passed away oh I'm sorry Jenny and um, I was actually there to witness her death and my father and I um, were trying to perform CPR on her and you know we were in in St. Louis Mm -hmm. because he was going to run the, the marathon and that was a really tough thing to go through So a year after you were diagnosed, one of your biggest champions and supporters and the person who was one of your caregivers, Mm -hmm. your mom, she passed away suddenly. Yes, she passed away very suddenly. It was very difficult. So how did that impact your, your progress and your journey? I mean, losing her in the midst of dealing with all of this yourself, how did you carry yourself through that? Well, um, my first MRI after she left, I went in the neuro-oncologist appointment with one of my aunts and God bless her, but uh, she was very ill-equipped. She was asking the doctor all sorts of questions and I said, no, 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 no. We're already past that point. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I already, I knew how to talk to the doctor at that point, you know, Um, so I had just had surgery and they weren't doing anything else because it was a low-grade tumor. They just wanted to gather data on it, gather scans and see how it was progressing over time Okay. so that they could look at that first like post-op scan and compare it like over the year, you know. So for the first year after you had surgery, you didn't actually do any treatments? No, I did not. Wow. Okay. After my mom passed, my first MRI 
and they brought me and they said, okay, well, it looks like it's growing. So we're going to go ahead and start you on chemo. And I said, no, I, I what? <laughs> it was just like a brick hitting me. And I said, you know, um, I just lost my mother and can I just wait? <laughs> You know, take a breather. Yeah. I was like, if if we wait another three months, is the tumor going to do anything atrocious? You know, Mm -hmm. can I just wait another three months? And they said, okay. So this was your first time seeing this doctor? Yes. And he was an older doctor. His bedside manner wasn't just as good. Mm -hmm. One of the nurses in the clinic who actually knew my mom, Mm -hmm. she witnessed this. And so she had them call me back to come in to see another doctor. Mm -hmm. This other doctor had treated my dad. So my dad actually had an oligoastrocytoma in 1996. So his was a cytoma, yours is a glioma. So they were both oligos, Mm -hmm. but uh, his was considered a mixed oligo. Mm-hmm. And his was a grade three when it was found. And it, you know, uh, he did surgery and then he did chemo and he did all of that stuff back in the 90s mm-hmm. when I was only about uh, 13. Okay. So when my tumor was found, they, of course, had to do MRIs on the, on the rest of my siblings and everyone to make sure that everyone else's heads were clear, not, you know, there weren't any other brain tumors in the family. So here you were a year later meeting with this new oncology team. And one of these doctors had actually treated and worked with your dad. Was your, your dad was still around at this time, correct? Yes. Okay. So what had happened was this nurse witnessed what, what I, me refusing treatment and asked the front desk to call me and get me in with this other doctor that had known my mom and my dad. Okay. And I went in to go see her. She walked in the room and she gave me a big hug. And she she was very sad because she said, you know, I really loved your mom. She was a really amazing woman. And I'm so sorry to hear of your loss. Um, of course, I don't know what you're you're really go, struggling with, um, but I kind of consider you family because my first time seeing you, you were a little tyke, and <laughs> I um, I really think you should do this chemo. You know, if if you were my you know if you were my family, I would have you do this chemo. And it was a it was the Tamadar, mm-hmm. the Temozolamide. Yes. And it was the week on, 23 days off. Yep. Yep. I'm familiar with that. Getting uh, blood work on uh, day one and day in the, at the end. So it sounds like her approach was much more empathetic and emotional. And it sounds like you agreed to start chemo and not wait the three months. Yes. Okay. I... Uh, you know, I just felt more of a connection with her. Mm-hmm. I have since followed her across three hospital systems, so I still see her to this day. So she's had a huge impact on you. Yes. I mean, she's just so kind-hearted. Um, she's been with me my whole journey now. Um, I just stress that it's very important for patients to have, find a doctor that they trust and 
if you don't feel right about what a doctor has told you, mm-hmm. you know, go find another one. Go seek as many opinions as, as you can um, on a situation. That can't be stressed enough. I'm I'm really glad that you're highlighting that. I have said it a couple of times in different episodes that it is extremely important to be your own best advocate or have somebody by your side that is your best advocate. And if you are not comfortable with who you are seeing for your your oncology, your neurology team, that you have the right to seek other opinions. Yes. And just because I like my doctor doesn't mean that she's the right doctor for other patients, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Because I've actually witnessed that. I've heard of other patients that were seeing her that, you know, didn't enjoy that experience. But, you know, I have that deep connection with her. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just really an amazing thing to have with your doctor. It's a very important thing. And now we should stress, too, that throughout the course of you telling the story, where we stand today, I mean, you've been on this journey now for roughly 12 to 13 years, which I tip my hat to you. I, I want to stand and applaud you. It's just, um, it's a blessing um, in all honesty that, that 12 or 13 years is, is an amazing journey. And I'm honored to have you on because I think it's important for other patients to realize that there are very different forms of brain cancer, but there is mm-hmm. definitely hope. And um, it is, uh, uh, for a lot of people, you can get to a point where you are just living your full life. You're living your best life and there, you have time. And I can't stress that enough to our listeners. And you're an example of that. Yeah. So after that experience and, you know, after losing my mom and seeing this um, new doctor and starting chemo, I actually found out about this organization. I, so I hadn't done any groups or connected with any other survivors because I felt there was such a disconnect from other survivors being in my 20s. You know, everyone else was about twice my age and married. And um, <laughs> so it, it, it was just there was such a disconnect um, mm-hmm. with any support groups. Um, but shortly after that, I found this organization that was meant for young adult cancer survivors, and they did what was called outdoor uh, adventure therapy. Okay. Do you remember the name of the organization? Yes. It's called First Descents, and they're based out of Denver. Okay. They send young adults on whitewater kayaking, surfing, and climbing trips. Wow. It's truly amazing. I decided to sign up for a kayaking trip in the Pacific Northwest about two hours east of Portland. Okay. And I went on this trip not knowing what to expect and not having kayaked or done anything of the sort. But it was amazing um, because every night we had a little campfire. Everyone was from like different areas of the country and had different um, types of cancer. I did encounter another brain cancer survivor um, he actually had had pediatric brain cancer. Oh, wow. But he was there and he was just awesome. And, and um, the the friendships you form from these trips is, is amazing cause, because it goes beyond just that week that you're out on the water. Mm-hmm. Their motto was, you know, this river doesn't care that you have cancer. You know, uh, you, you have to paddle through it and get through it. 
regardless. Mm. And I just found it so empowering. And it was just amazing to meet other people that were closer to my age that were dealing with this diagnosis. So it sounds like trips like this and this organization really helped you navigate those first few years after you were diagnosed. Yes. So I ended up going on that kayaking trip. I met a few friends from that. And then I went on a surfing trip in California. Then in 2013, I went on a surfing trip to Bali with them. Wow. Yes. I mean, I can't say enough good things about this organization. I mean, their initial programs are free, Mm -hmm. but then you end up fundraising for them for, you know, for their trips. Okay. I see. Now, throughout the course of the last 12 years or so, was that first round of chemo the only treatment that you had to go through? And how long were you doing that treatment? Or have you had to do chemo more often? That first round of chemo, I did 24 of those. 24 rounds. Okay. Yes. Over the course of like, oh, it was over two years. Mm-hmm. So I went on those trips while I was doing chemo. Um <laughs> As as crazy as that seems, on one of my surfing trips, I had to get my blood drawn, mm-hmm. and it was in the state of California, and they wouldn't take any orders from any out-of-state doctor. <laughs> so I had to go into a doctor. It was a whole ordeal. Oh, gosh. You know, they don't make it easy sometimes, do they? No. I'm like, I just need a quick CBC, please. <laughs> <laughs> So that was 24 rounds of of Temidar, and unfortunately, that Temidar um, it did give bring me some anxiety. Um, I I did have anxiety prior to taking the pills because I would just feel so rotten afterwards. Like the next day, I would feel hungover. Yeah, and I would say this is not fair because I didn't have a fun night last night. <laughs> you know, that's funny. My my husband went through that. And developed a little bit of anxiety going into um, his Temidar cycle because he felt the same way. It would always feel like he was hungover. And he's like, that sucks because it's not like I got to drink my favorite craft beers and I'm still feeling like this the next day and paying for it. Yeah. And um, I would basically take the anti-nausea, the Zofran, and then it would start because then I'm like, I'm going to be taking the the poison, you know, (laughs) as I call it. But yeah, I I did get through it. And when I was, um, after I took my my 24th round of of Temidar, I was going in for my MRI. I was really excited to be stopping Temidar. I'm like, yeah. And so I go (laughs) into the uh, MRI. My doctor actually was no longer working at the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. So I went in to go see this new doctor, and I was a little nervous about that. But uh, you know, I was still, you know, uh, upbeat about it. And I went to go see this new doctor, um, and he was reviewing my scans with me, and he was pointing at, you know, something in the tumor, and he said, "Well, I'm not exactly sure what this is, but I'm, you know, I'm going to talk this conference. I'm going to talk with these other doctors." And I was just flabbergasted with those words. You know, I'm not sure what this is. Right. It's like, okay, you need to elaborate on that statement. I asked him if I could go shop around, if I could go seek opinions of other doctors. And he said, oh, certainly. He actually gave me a 
referral to a doctor in their sister hospital. Mm -hmm. And my previous doctor, my aunt actually Googled her name and she has a very unique name, Dr. Paleologos. So (laughs) uh, thank goodness she has that unique name because she Googled her name and she found out that she was at Rush Hospital here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I called over there and I said, hey, I'm a patient of Dr. Paleologos from her previous um, position and I would like to see her. Mm Mm-hmm you know, there's something on my scan. And they responded with, well, she's not seeing patients yet. So I said, well, can you just tell her that Jenny Williams called and there was something on my scan? Mm -hmm. So they call me right back and they said, okay, she wants to see you immediately. And (laughs) I gather my files from the previous hospital and bring them over. And I walk in to go see her and I can tell she's just not set up to see patients. You know, she's on this tiny little screen reviewing my MRI with me. And, uh, but you know, we were making the most of it. Right. And she said, I know exactly what's going on with this. Um, Really? What'd she say it was? So she said that my um, tumor was evolving, that the spots where the dye took up. So there were um, spots of contrast dye Mm -hmm. that showed up on the scan and, um, she said where these spots are are probably higher grade cells of a tumor. I had mentioned to her that the other doctor had said about you know, that he was thinking about radiation. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, problem is, you know, we don't know if those cells will resist radiation um, because they grew while you were doing chemo. Interesting. So what was her recommendation at that point? So she wanted me to do surgery. A second surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you did a second brain surgery. Yes. So in October of 2012, I did another craniotomy and, and I was awake for it. Um, I did it with a Dr. Byrne. He's one of the top neurosurgeons in the country. Mm-hmm. And she actually said that, you know, he was the reason she transferred to this hospital because um, she wanted to work with him. Wow. So I went in to go see Dr. Byrne, and yeah, he performed an awake craniotomy, which was so weird. That's got to be nerve-wracking. I think you might be the first one I've spoken to that's that's gone through that. Um, that's that's a heavy load. Um, I mean, I remember it. So they actually had um, they put me to sleep for opening and closing, mm-hmm. and they wake me up like during it, and I'm in kind of a twilight state. Um, but I'm still able to hear and, and see things and, mm-hmm. and do certain exercises. So where the tumor is located is on the um, parietal lobe. Part of the tumor that they wanted to take out was a little more towards the temporal and the uh, motor, motor cortex. Okay. So they, they had me doing exercises. So is that why they wanted you awake? Was so that they could have you doing these things so they kind of knew where they needed to navigate? Yes. Interesting. I heard the neurosurgeon directly over my ear, um, and he would say, okay, can you squeeze this guy's hand, the anesthesiologist, to him? Um, I was under a a sheet, um, Mm -hmm. and I thought... I was just thinking, oh, are we playing a game? You know, like, oh, peekaboo. And so I was squeezing the guy's hand with my left hand. And I'm sure they were basically judging, say, okay, is this tumor? Is she able to do things or or is this live brain? Mm -hmm. 
And then um, after that surgery, I actually bounced back much quicker. Um, after my first surgery, I actually had to do a lot of physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, I didn't need to do any ther- therapy for. Um, mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, I bounced back. Like it just, I'm like, oh, it just feels like another day. I mean, I was sore afterwards. I had a little bit of swelling. That's great though. So for this one, I didn't have any family in town besides my aunts, um, but it was it was a little nerve-wracking to go through it without my mom. Yeah, to have some of those core supports around you. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Was that the last brain surgery you had, or have you had another one since then? No, so that was the last one I had. After that one, I did six weeks of radiation. You did. Dr. Palogos had said, Let's do the surgery and let's follow it up with the six weeks of IMRT radiation. Okay. What was difficult about going through that was I had no one at the time to take me to my appointments. Um, So you were taking yourself to radiation? Yes. So they didn't want me riding the train or bus or anything like that. So actually with American Cancer Society, they set up some, um, some ride program for me to get to and from the hospital for treatments. Wow. It was actually with a cab company. And I always kind of felt lonely because I would walk into the waiting room and there were, you know, other people's families waiting for their loved ones in the radiation machine. Mm-hmm. I did feel pretty alone at that time. I'm so sorry. That's, it breaks my heart to hear that. I, it's, if I had known you then, I probably would have flown out and just sat with you. Um, it's a really difficult experience to go through, let alone going through it by yourself at, you probably were around 29 at that point, so so young. But it also shows your strength to have that kind of a, a load and that much of an ask put on your shoulders, given everything you had already gone through. It tells a lot about your character and your strength. and that's saying something. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really in awe of the path that you've walked. Um, mm-hmm. I tell our listeners quite often. And when I write about my journey, I say quite often that usually it's not a singular loss or a singular trauma that we go through. It's usually wrapped around kind of a domino effect. There's, we seem to get kind of front loaded with a lot of different things, and it can be really heavy to handle. Uh, but I, I'm of the mindset that the universe only gives you what you can handle. And uh, for those of us who are standing and are walking through this with our heads high, it, it shows a lot about our character and our strength. And you are definitely one of those individuals that I'm in awe of. So um, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but man, it's... Uh, says a lot about you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thankfully, I've been able to um, inspire others going through this journey alone. You know, I was trying to date um, during this time too. (laughs) Oh God, talk about a complication. Yes. So, you know, here I am, I'm just, I'm trying to work and go to treatment. I would go to all my MRIs alone. um, And um, there was a certain point in time when I would fit my MRIs into like my lunch break or something, you know, it's just insane to think back to then. 
And you were trying to juggle dating because dating's not complicated enough on its own. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> my motto or my like my MO was that I would not date when I was currently in active treatment, you know, mm -hmm. because um, my stance on it was this is not something that almost everyone wants to jump in and, you know, go, go for, you know, mm -hmm. I kind of consider myself damaged goods, you know, which you are not, but, um, <laughs> at all. I, uh, you know, there was this, that was moments where you kind of feel like you are and, yeah. um, you're kind of self-doubting, um, especially after losing my hair from radiation, I had to get a wig to go on mm -hmm. dates <laughs> and that was not fun because, there are ladies who get wigs, you know, because they're going through chemotherapy and they, they lose their hair from that. But when you're losing your hair because you're throwing radiation at it, your mm. scalp is just screaming for help. It's it's like having a sunburn on your head. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to do is put an itchy wig on it. Mm -hmm. I just waited long enough so that the... Um, redness and the the irritation was kind of down mm -hmm. it did take a while for hair to start growing back but and my hair hasn't even fully grown back to um which is why I wear hats all the time so that was um that was 2012 and then I went to Bali in 2013 so when I was in Bali I actually had like half of a head of hair and <laughs> um, I was out surfing the waves. I didn't care. You know, I was amongst other cancer survivors and mm -hmm. um, they were just like, rock on Jenny, you know, and actually <laughs> with this program, we, we didn't actually use our, our names. The interesting thing is they have you pick a nickname mm -hmm. and my nickname was Pengi because I love penguins so much. Aww. I was known always as the penguin girl, you know. So, oh, there's Pengi, you know. Like, <laughs> I actually like the analogy of penguin as being my sort of power animal mm -hmm. because penguins endure so much. Like they endure such harsh conditions and yet they, they make it through and they thrive through it still. They're one of those small creatures that you don't think will be able to tough out some of the hardest things and yet they're still standing. That's, I like that. So now where are you currently? Are you in remission right now? Are you in treatment? What do you, where's your journey now? In 2015, I actually did more treatment. Um, that was because there were um, some, some, you know, suspicious scans. It was just after my birthday in 2015 that I was told I had to do PCV chemo because since the Temidar didn't seem to be as effective. So let's explain to the listeners. So PCV chemo is... It's a, it's a drug cocktail. So PCV stands for Procarbazine, CCNU, and Vincristine. So it's a different form of chemo. Yeah. So it's... Okay. it's so Temidar is one drug... Mm -hmm. PCV is three drugs. Wow, that's quite the cocktail. Yes. Um, Procarbazine and CCNU are both pill form like Temidar. Okay. And then Vincristine is done through IV. 
So now how did you respond to that treatment? It was a much more complicated schedule, let me tell you. You take CCNU on day one, and then you take procarbazine, the other pill, for two weeks starting on day eight. Wow. Okay. And then um, the vincristine was also on day eight. But the vincristine I'm less familiar with now because I did less of it. So each cycle is six to eight weeks. And it's complicated because with the procarbazine, you can't eat certain foods. Um, you can't eat like soy sauce and aged cheeses, hmm. things that are um, high in uh, tyramine, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, a amino acid in certain foods. But you are also now with an amazing partner and Sam, who you've been with, you said, for five years. Yes. It was shortly after my birthday, so end of January. Come February, I have this friend that I met through another friend who was contacting me. He said, oh, I really want to take you to your infusion appointments. And yeah, he would go and he would hang out with me because what would happen with the Vin Christine uh, appointments is I would need to go in and get my blood checked. So they needed to make sure my counts were okay. Mm-hmm. And then they would order the dosage for it. So you would end up waiting for a while. Mm-hmm. And then they get you in the chemo chair. And he would be there with me that whole time. Our, our first date was on Valentine's Day. Aww. He actually contacted me to take me out. I said, oh, I'm free next Saturday, you know. I realized that morning it was Valentine's Day, and I was like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> he shows up. He gives me a single rose. Aww. We have a really fun day. We do all these, these Chicago-y things. It was, it was a really fun day. That's amazing. He ended up, you know, giving me a kiss at the end of the night, and I was just like, whoa, I don't know if I'm, you know, ready to date. <laughs> Shortly after that, I had to move apartments. And the morning of my move day, I woke up with my head spinning. I didn't know how I was going to operate a truck, mm-hmm. uh, let alone stand upright and lift things. You know, yeah. I had a bunch of friends that were going to come out and help me move. I get a message from Sam that morning. Mm-hmm. And he said, Oh, Hey, all ready for the big day. You know, I responded with, I don't know how I'm going to do this. He came down, picked me up and he drove the truck and basically ran everything. And my friends turned to me and they said, who is this guy? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess he's my boyfriend now. <laughs> <laughs> so that says quite a lot about him. He's an amazing individual. I would love for First, to just let listeners know how you're doing today. Sure. So, I mean, um, I am actually currently finishing up a round of treatment, but I am thankful to say that I took my last round and I am just going to go back on wait and watch. And I am proud to say that I help support others through their journeys, too. I'm an ambassador for Brains for the Cure, Head for the Cure. It's really amazing. I can, you know, meet people and I can help inspire them through their journey, uh, other patients, other thrivers. And it's been an awesome experience. I'm really proud to be doing that to kind of honor my um, my dad and mom who both passed away. 
Mm-hmm. Just my dad, he ended up passing away after 19 years with his tumor. Mm-hmm. I really hope the same thing that happened to him doesn't happen to me, um, right. which what happened to him was the same thing that happened to your husband. The leptomeningeal disease. Yes. And uh, it's extremely rare, uh, as you know, and I really hope it doesn't happen with me. I don't plan on it. And the best thing that you can do is be proactive. It's all about awareness and having this information Um, with your dad, most likely, um, as with my husband, the oncologist, this wasn't on their radar because it does only happen in about 10% or less of cases. So when it's not on the doctor's radar, Nobody's really looking for paying attention to, could this be something that could happen? And it, and it is very rare. So I would say that as long as you're proactive about it and you're aware, you know, that there are things like that out there, you're doing everything that you need to be doing. And, you know, you're very aware of the different trials and the treatment options that are out there. You seem to have a really great team of doctors, um, and your journey is extremely inspiring. Um, you know, I, I'm so grateful that you have somebody like Sam in your life. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to be witness to your strength and your fortitude to persevere through this. Uh, you know, going on 13 years, that is no small feat. So um, you're doing extremely, extremely well. And I am thrilled to have our listeners be able to hear a story like yours Uh, to show, to show them, um, and to be an inspiration to others that there are ways to navigate through this. And there's also ways to live life, find love and be happy. And so, uh, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story and being with us today. Of course. So we will have information about Jenny's story and some of the things that we talked about in today's episode. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to hearing more about your journey and how you're doing. Okay. Sounds great. All right. Thank you. The rule of reciprocity. It's simple. Reciprocation assures that whether the fruit of our actions are sweet or bitter, selfish or pure, we reap what we sow. This thinking boils down to this. We receive what we give and we give what we receive. The rule of reciprocity. The author Robert Cialdini simplifies many different rules that teach us and educate us on the ways in which society says yes to things. The behaviors of individuals for why They act or do the things that they do, whether in business, community, social settings, fundraising. Robert Cialdini was somebody my husband looked up to. He had all of his books. He highlighted many phrases. He wrote notes in the margins because he was always looking for a way to be a better leader, to communicate better, to be a better human being. His actions were pure. You reap what you sow. So why do I bring this up today? I bring this up because this episode exemplifies and aptly captures the rule of reciprocity. Jenny is a patient who is giving back all that she has received, support, love, education. She's an ambassador and she's reaching out to others so that other patients and caregivers and family members and community know that they're not alone that we're all in this journey together. 
and guests like Jenny are proof that there are so many other individuals with amazing, powerful stories out there that are doing the same thing. This is why we come together. This is why we share our stories. No matter how hard they are to tell, we share them to reciprocate what's been given to us. And as long as we continue to do that, continue to help others, to educate, to lean on each other, to be there for each other, then we will move the needle in finding better treatments and a cure for brain cancer, as well as hold each other up during difficult times. I am grateful to have had Jenny Williams on our show today, and I look forward to hearing her progress. The rule of reciprocity, we reap what we sow. Keep that in mind as you go forward through the rest of your day, the rest of your week, the rest of your year, to give out of love, to give out of good-naturedness, to support others no matter how hard it may be for you at times. You'll be amazed at what you receive in return. Please visit my website, thegameongleopodcast.com, where I will be giving you an update on where Jenny Williams is in her journey right now and a little bit more background and information on her father and his diagnosis. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you again next month. Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Game on Glio podcast. Make sure to visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show via Podbean, iTunes, Google, Apple, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd love to hear what you think. Please post a review, give us a rating, or simply share with others so that they can listen to the show in the future. That'll help us too. If you like this show, you might want to check us out on Facebook at GameOnGleo, or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next month for another exciting episode of the Game on Glio Podcast.